Thank you for listening to an audio resource from Stanwich Church, located in Greenwich and Stamford, Connecticut. The vision of Stanwich Church is to know Christ and make Him known. The New Testament lesson for today is from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. This can be found on page 1081 of your Pew Bible. The promised Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost in the presence of people from multiple nations, allowing each person to hear the good news in his own language. This event set in motion the spread of the gospel throughout the first century known world. A reading from Acts chapter 2, beginning with the first verse. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. How can we change culture? This question seems to be top of mind for so many people right now. I'm hearing about it everywhere I go. I have coffee with somebody, I'm sitting down for a meeting with a group of people, and I'm hearing from so many people what their ideas are about what we need to do, what needs to happen in order for our culture to change, to improve. But what we see in the Bible and what we see particularly in the story of Pentecost is that really there is one thing that can ultimately, meaningfully, everlastingly change our world. I want us to dive into this story together to find out what that thing is and what our role in it might be. So let's go to the scriptures together. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. When the day of Pentecost arrived, it says, the Pentecost, the word Pentecost simply means 50. There were three festivals on the Jewish calendar that all Jewish men, no matter where they lived, were required to come back to Jerusalem for. 
The first one was Passover. The second one is called the Feast of Weeks, which is also called Pentecost. Why is it called Pentecost? Why is it called 50? Because the law required that after the Passover feast, when everybody would come to Jerusalem and go back home, they were required to return to Jerusalem one day and seven Sabbaths later, which is 50 days. You can picture the people leaving Jerusalem after Pentecost saying, I'll see you in 50. I'll see you at Pentecost. And maybe that's where the nickname came from. But it's the Feast of Weeks. And what they were required to do at Pentecost was to take a sheaf of wheat from wherever they lived throughout the known world with them to Jerusalem to offer it in the temple as an act of worship. So this was a pilgrimage that all Jewish men were required to make one time a year, 50 days after Passover. They gave their wheat as an offering to God as an act of worship, but it also sustained the ministry of the temple for that next season, like Greg was just calling us to do. We give as an act of worship, but it sustains the ministry for that next season. So people from the known world had gathered in Jerusalem for this festival, for this act of worship. And it says in verse 1, they're all together in one place. The story that we see unfold in this chapter is not just of Jewish men who had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost, but believers in Jesus Believers that people who believed that Jesus was who he said he was, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Why are they all together in one place? They're celebrating Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. They're in Jerusalem for that purpose. Verse 2. Suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Now Luke is writing these words. The gospel writer Luke also wrote Acts. And Luke is trying to describe something that's a bit indescribable. We're going to find in the next verse that he's describing the presence of the Holy Spirit. But he's trying to give words, he's trying to give language, pictures to what this felt like, what it was like when the Holy Spirit entered into the room. Notice the language where it says there's a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Tongues as of fire. These are metaphors. These are attempts to describe the unexplainable. Sometimes I feel the Holy Spirit and I have a hard time putting words to it. So often as I stand here in the front row, as we sing, as we praise God together, I feel the Holy Spirit through your praise. It's kind of cool being in the front of the room, just hearing you all sing behind me. And sometimes what it feels like, it's pretty consistent week to week. It feels almost like a, a cool water, like a bubbling brook. It's kind of flowing through my body. It's not actual water, obviously, but it kind of feels like that. Luke is trying to describe the Holy Spirit in a similar kind of way. A sound like a mighty rushing wind, tongues as of fire. These are metaphors, but in verse 4, he's quite certain. He's not using the as if and like language anymore. He's quite sure of what this is. Verse 4, he says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They begin to speak in utter other tongues. We're going to learn in a couple of verses that what they're speaking, what the languages are that they're speaking are the languages of the people who have gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost. What are they saying? 
What did the Holy Spirit allow them to say in those languages that people could hear? You can go home and read the rest of the chapter. I'm just going to summarize it really briefly for us. But it's basically a description of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We basically call this the gospel. Gospel means good news. News is reporting on something that has happened. Jesus Christ came into the world. He did signs and wonders among us. He was handed over into the hands of evil men, of sinful men. He died on the cross. But he didn't stay dead. He was different than every other person in human history. He rose from the dead and he is alive today. These are the basic facts of the gospel. Jesus Christ came into the world. He did signs and wonders, taught us how to live and how to love. He died on a cruel cross and he rose again from the dead. That's the gospel. That's what the Holy Spirit inspired people to preach, to say in languages that people could understand because they had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. The Holy Spirit gave utterance So that's what the Bible says happened on Pentecost. And I want us to ask a a serious question about this story. The question is this, did this story actually happen? Did this really take place? Is this a historical account? I'm asking that question because there seems to be some question, at least in the classrooms that I know about, about whether or not the, the events of the Bible really happened or whether or not religious discourse lines up with history, with science. I heard a conversation from a couple of middle schoolers here in the congregation who were in their school, and they heard their science teacher say, there will be no talk about God in this class. If you're talking about God, that's not science. And the one girl that I heard, a sixth grader, was sitting there, She went like this. Her neighbor sitting next to her, she was going like this. Her neighbor also goes to our church, and she was going like this, looking at her. They reported all of this to Lauren, who was giving the announcements a moment ago here. And the one girl said to the other girl, what does he think made science? (laughs) And the other girl said, that's what I was thinking. (laughs) But there seems to be this false dichotomy that there's God and then there's science, that there's the Bible, and then there's actual history. But let's just examine that with this particular story. I'm going to read verses 5 through 10 for us, and I want you to put that map up, Max, if you would, on the wall. It's also the same map that's on the cover of your program. You might want to just watch the map as I read these verses. Look for the place names as, they, as you hear them read. Okay, starting with verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation, under heaven. Why is that the case? Because it's Pentecost. Verse 6, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language. There's a little bit of a dig here on Galileans. Galileans weren't exactly known as the most educated people. It's kind of like backwater folks. And yet they're speaking in PhD level languages from people from all around the world. Verse nine, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia 
Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. And in the gospel writer here, Luke slows down on this phrase as if to really highlight it for us. And visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselyte. A proselyte is someone who believes in the God of the Bible but who didn't grow up Jewish. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So that's what the Bible says happened, that people from all over the known world came to Jerusalem, heard the gospel preached because of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Now I want to show another map. Max, if you could put that one up. This one is, notice on the bottom right corner, it says World History Encyclopedia. This is not a religious resource, okay? This is just a... A snapshot of something that happened in history. They're not trying to prove the Bible or anything. They're just telling us this map shows us where early Christianity was in the first, second, and third centuries. You can find this map in more detail online if you want to dive into it. I realize the font is really small. But this is showing us the first, second, and third centuries. What amazes me about this is that it's basically the same map. It's the same map that was described in Acts chapter 2, where people had come from the known world. They had heard the gospel preached, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does this tell us? It tells us that when they heard that in Jerusalem, they went home and they told their friends about it. The movement of the Holy Spirit empowered them to go home. Notice it's the same map, but it now has the addition of the whole Roman Empire way off to the west. Finish this phrase with me, will you? All roads lead to... Yeah, good, good job. Good students in this class classroom. It apparently all roads lead out of Rome as well, because once the gospel hit Rome, once people started telling their friends, their neighbors, their, their classmates, their family about the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they went and told their friends about it, and it traveled throughout the entire Roman Empire. So it really happened, folks. I mean, this is circumstantial evidence, I realize, but something happened in Jerusalem. This is the most amazing movement that history had ever seen. There's an explosion of Christianity in the first, second, and third centuries. Try to explain that. Unless there was some kind of event where people had come from all these nations and they had heard the gospel in their own tongues and went out and told everybody else they knew about it. A movement of the Holy Spirit empowering and inspiring people to preach the gospel, changed culture. It changed the world. Not only did these folks tell people the basic facts of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, they also acted on it. They lived and they loved like Jesus. They served the poor wherever they went. They fed the hungry. They adopted babies that nobody else wanted. They prayed for healing and for deliverance to people who needed it. They built communities like the one we're in right now in this room where they connected with God and with one another in Christian fellowship. Notice with me that in the first, second, and third Centuries in the Roman Empire, the emperors came and went. It didn't matter who the senators were, but the movement of the Holy Spirit proclaiming the gospel in word and deed changed the culture. Do you know what that culture was like? 
I hear people nowadays despairing about how secular our culture is becoming. It's a post-Christian culture. But what the early Christians faced was a pre-Christian culture. And they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach and live out the gospel, and it changed the world. They didn't seek worldly power to do so. They called upon the Holy Spirit. And he came upon them, and it changed culture. In the previous chapter, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we learn the very last words, the parting words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven. You put up Acts chapter 1, verse 8 for us, Max. The disciples have just asked Jesus how... Well, they say, Jesus, is now the time you will restore the kingdom to Israel? They were hoping that he might restore worldly power so they could reclaim their influence in culture. They could overthrow the Romans, basically. They were asking for worldly power to change the world around them. And look what Jesus responds, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, you will receive power when... The Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. What's the one thing that can really change our culture? It's the Holy Spirit inspiring and empowering us to live out and to preach the gospel in this post-Christian world that we find ourselves in. No other means are going to be as effective as a movement of the Holy Spirit. This past week, I met with a man named Dick Farrell. Some of you might remember Dick Farrell, a longtime member of the church. He and his wife, Jackie, moved away a few years ago to an assisted care facility. Jackie died a little less than a month ago. And Dick was feeling, um, understandably, very sad and depressed about this. And his daughter said, I think you need to go meet with Nathan. So she picked him up and drove him here, and we met together this past week. And he told me this story that I want to share with you. He gave me permission to share it. It illustrates how a movement of the Holy Spirit is more powerful than anything else. He told the story of when he and Jackie first came to Sandwich Church, their first visit. It was many years ago. It was in the old building around the bend, and... They got out of the car, and the first person that they saw who greeted them was Bill Hallenbeck. Bill and Dick knew each other from their advertising days in the city. I'm picturing Don Draper and company, <laughs> these guys in the, in the ad world. He recognized Bill. Bill greeted him, and they went in for worship there in the old, the old chapel. And Dick said to me, he said, yeah, there was a guest preacher that Sunday, and he wasn't very good. And then he said, there, there was a guest organist, too. The organist was out of town, and the organist kept missing his cues. And when it got to communion, there was some kind of logistical chaos with the communion. We didn't even get the elements. We left church without getting communion. And I was cringing at this whole part of the story. He said he got into the car with Jackie after the service, and he looked at her and he said, this church is where we belong. Because he had met the Holy Spirit here, which was more persuasive and effective than any 
thing any human being could have done for them that day. I was hearing him tell this story, and I said, you know, Dick, your daughter drove you here to meet with me today, but based on that story, it's really not going to be me who makes you feel any better. What you and I both need is an encounter with the Holy Spirit, even now. So we walked over into the prayer chapel together, and we took communion together. And through tears streaming down his face, he had ministry from the Holy Spirit. It changed him that day as well. And the same Holy Spirit is still alive and active and available to us that it might come and change us so that we might go out into the world to change the world. Yes, worldly systems need to be changed. Laws need to be changed, all the stuff. But it's going to start with a movement of the Holy Spirit through the people of God. The people ask Peter, who's one of the ones who was speaking the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. They asked him, Basically, how do we get that Holy Spirit? And that may be on our minds right now. If it's true what the Bible says, that the one thing that can really change the world is the power and presence of the Holy Spirit empowering God's people to preach and live out the gospel, we might be wondering, well, how do we get it then? How do we get the Holy Spirit? Because if that's what we need, how do we get access to it? Where can I order that? What can I click? (laughs) It doesn't come that way. Verse 37, Acts chapter 2, verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Does anybody want our culture changed? Repent. That's where it starts. Two weeks ago, I called the congregation to pray with me here in the sanctuary on Wednesday night. It was the day after the latest mass shooting. Sent that email out to 700 names on the list and A lot of people replied saying, I'll be there, or I can't be there, but I'll be praying with you in spirit. And a few people replied saying, your thoughts and prayers are worthless. We need action. I hear you. Some of us did gather, and we did pray here, and we prayed for the stuff going on in our culture and the stuff going on in our world. And those of you who were here, you know what happened. There was a movement of the Holy Spirit that began shaping and changing how we prayed We stopped praying for a few minutes about all the people out there, and we started feeling compelled and led by the Spirit to pray prayers of confession, personal confession and repentance. People were saying, Lord, I surrender to you. I confess. I repent. I turn to you. And I know that it was a movement of the Holy Spirit. I heard this phrase coming across my mind as people were praying these amazing repentance prayers. This phrase kept coming across my consciousness. I trust that it was from the Holy Spirit, and the phrase was this. A revival of repentance. A revival of repentance. A revival of repentance. And I was beginning to imagine in my mind's eye this revival sweeping across the land with Christ followers like you and me. Before culture out there can change, we have to repent in here, us. We don't just stand on street corners telling the pagans to repent. God says, for us to repent. 
to return to him with all our hearts and say, come, Holy Spirit, like you did on Pentecost, rest upon us. Give us the words to speak. Give us the power. Give us the inspiration. Send us out into this godless society and teach us how to both preach the word in word and in deed to love and serve the people who need it. That's how our culture will change. It worked in the ancient world. And it will work in our world as well. There's a higher authority above all the authorities of this earth. And his name is Jesus Christ. And there's a higher power than all the powers of this world. His name is the Holy Spirit. So why not today? At the communion table, you're going to hear Pastor Heather give instruction for coming forward to take the elements we're going to confess as we do every Sunday. Let's make this an honest, real confession and repent. By the way, the difference between confession and repentance is this. Confession is just, Lord, I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Repentance is actually turning from those sins. Let's do that today. And if you so desire to receive the Holy Spirit afresh, there will be prayer teams beyond the communion stations. Just walk up to them and say, I'd like the Holy Spirit in a new way today, or for the first time maybe, to fill you up so that he can send you out. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. To learn more about the mission and vision of Stanwich Church and how you can get involved, please visit stanwichchurch.org.